Hey everybody, discount, discount, I got a discount. You Are What You Read is brought to you by Book of the Month. And our friends at Book of the Month want you to enjoy some of their fabulous titles for just $9.99. As a Book of the Month member, I love getting that blue box of books each month filled with my selections. Sometimes I get a thriller, other times a romance. Oh, I love it. Historical fiction, memoirs, classics, you name it. Book of the Month has a book just for you, and it's delivered right to your door. When you become a Book of the Month member, you join a community of readers just like you. I'm a fan of Book of the Month app where I can rate and review books, listen to podcasts and audiobooks, and browse hundreds of titles to add to my monthly box. The app makes your membership benefits easily accessible and enjoyable, all at your fingertips. Now back to the discount, you can head to bookofthemonth.com and use code ADRI, that's right, A-D-R-I at checkout to get your first book for $9.99. That's A-D-R-I at checkout. Thank you, Book of the Month. Craig Ferguson is one of my favorite people on the planet. A Grammy-nominated Peabody and Emmy Award-winning actor, writer, producer, director, comedian, author, and more, Craig was the host of The Late Late Show on CBS for 10 years and remains a cult favorite on YouTube, racking up millions of views every year on fan-posted bootleg clips. I love Craig, and after this interview, if you don't know him, you will too. He makes us laugh remember, and feel inspired. He's one of the most well-read individuals I have ever met. And it all starts with those books, the books that built his soul. Yeah, the, the, the first book that I remember that, that springs to mind when you talk about reading to the kids is um, Curious George, because um, I both uh, Liam and Milo loved Curious George when they were little kids. Uh, they loved Danny and the Dinosaur and Harry the Dirty Dog and all the great classics. Um, and I could uh, entertain myself by doing the different voices of the characters in the in the book. So when the when the man with the yellow hat he talks like that, he, he's he's like, "Hello, George. Um, you seem like." So I'm going to take you to a big zoo in a big city. You'll like it there. Uh, come along and don't get into any trouble. And uh, and then uh, Danny and the dinosaur, when uh, the dinosaur helps the lady across the street with her shopping, uh, I have the lady uh, say in a British carry-on movies, double entendre voice, Oh, thank you for helping me with my bundles, said a lady. So it's... Wow. It, I, I like to entertain myself by, by reading the kids because the thing is, now you know this, you have to read them the same story every night. Um, it's part of the thing. It got to the point, uh, and I think I could probably do this right now, uh, is that I know Curious George off by heart. So wherever I was in the world, I used to call in when Liam was very little. I mean, he, he's, you know, he's almost 13 now. He doesn't need it. But when... Um, when he was very little, if I was away doing a gig or something like that, I would call up the house uh, and I would do Curie's George down the phone because I, I memorized it. 
so that I could do, um, this is George. He's a good little monkey and sometimes very curious or something. And then it goes, I can do the whole thing. And, and so I, I kind of, uh, I found, I do find reading at night and books very comforting. And, and I think the kids do too. So that was, that was the reason, or these are the books that spring to mind when you talk about, about reading to the kids when they're little. Well, Megan and you have a home full of books. You could curl up in any room in your house, and I did, and just go through books. They're just incredible books, because uh, uh, Megan's trade is art, right? Yeah. So her the home is artful. But somebody came into my house the other day and said something, that, and it made me think of you and Megan. She said, you know, you've got books in every room here. I mean, Megan even puts them up the stairs when you're climbing to the top of that small mobile home you live in in Scotland in the woods. Well, yeah, but I mean, you run out of space for books. They take up a lot of room. Well, well, she puts them up the stairs artfully, yeah. too, yeah, so sure. that when you're going up the stairs, you could sit and you, you kind of need to rest. Between <laughs> the nine, and the, you know, I told you I packed a suitcase when I'd come down in the morning for breakfast because I ain't going back up there again. It, but that's not 10,000 steps. That's 200,000 steps. Anyway. But the books, this, the woman said to me, a home full of books has the wisdom of all the books in the air of the home. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, you get a vibe for books. I mean, look. There you, you go, can, it's a vibe. And I think that, you know, I have, you know, we all have the library of Alexandria right here in our phones. I mean, there's like the wisdom of the ages is contained in this phone. But it... But it's different uh, mm -hmm. because I think I think particularly with a book, you get it in the form to which the uh, you you know this you write books you write a book and that's how it's done you're finished you didn't you didn't write an email that was a hundred thousand words long and so even with Kindles even with all these uh, good and I get the convenience of it and I use them occasionally myself but the tactile presence of uh, paper and the smell of old books and the kind of the fact that other people have read them and and that I've read them even um I that that's important to me I I think that I get a lot from the physical presence of the author I also you know and and I realize this is probably a Luddite thing in me but I um I, I really hate the interference of Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and Elon Musk in my entertainment, you know, in my in my reading and like, and you never know when somebody's going to pop up with a try this or here's a thing that'll make you angry or click on this, you fucking loser. And we'll order course, a hamburger. That's yeah, in there too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I don't, I don't need, I don't need to be interrupted. My mind's. Uh, the only thing I will say is this: is that you know, it's quite nice to be able to. Uh, look up a word, um, you know, if you're going <laughs> like, so, I, so will true. Have, I will have my phone next to me. So when someone says it was with great perspicacity and I'm like, oh, fuck, all right, perspicacity and I have to go and, you know, look that up. But it, it's, um, uh, I, I, I prefer the company uh, of the books themselves. And I get that that's not for everyone, but, you know, we're not talking about everyone. We're talking about me. Okay, we're talking about you. Um, you 
I'd like to point this out about Danny and the Dinosaur and your son, Milo. Milo is, a, if I had to write a primer on how to build an artist, I would copy what you did with Milo because Milo is, he, he eats, breathes, and sleeps his art, his does, storytelling, yeah. his, his illustrations, his drawings, his renderings, all of it. And I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm amazed at his talent. But I, I want to go back to Danny and the Dinosaur because that's Sid Hoff, and he doesn't get talked about a lot, the mm. illustrator and the writer of that book. Um, there was a group back then, Craig, that were incredible. Now, from your childhood, which would be also my childhood, uh, Louis Slobodkin was a big name. He right. did Too Many Mittens. Remember those books? They're, they're yeah. very, the linear line drawings, I'll show you one in a second. Um, they, they permeated. Now, you had Enid Blyton. Yeah, that's right. The, the, the uh, famous five and the secret seven. And I think, I think the Enid Blyton things, as I remember, they were a little bit south of England for me, though. They were like, I was in Scotland and all these kids were like, let's go and get rumpy scrumpy tup and let's get crumpets and go and foil the Nazis. And uh, it was always a bit, it was a bit of Daily Mail. But the, the one that I loved out of that mob, I don't know if, if you are familiar with this, is uh, Richmond Crompton, the, uh, who wrote the Just William books. Um, um. And the William books were, were the, the kids' books that I loved when I was a kid. He was such a naughty, naughty boy. Um, I started reading them when I was about 10 years old. And William in the books is about 10 or 11 years old. And they were written in the 1930s. And, you know, and... They have a little bit of political uh, challenges for, <laughs> for the current times, but, uh, you know, they were written a long time ago. Well, like the Hardy Boys or Nancy Drew. Yeah, I don't know Huckleberry those... Finn, for God's sakes. I mean, this Huckleberry is... Finn. Well, that one you could do a, a thesis on, couldn't you? Yeah, I mean, I had people have done. I mean, look, the, the, you know, language changes, uh, orthodoxy uh, changes. Uh, and so, you know... It, it's uh, it's sometimes a challenge, particularly for our, our uh, current crop of young academics. I think it's a challenge to for them to see uh, how things used to be without uh, getting uh, outraged about it. How about outraged? Yes. Yeah, outraged. They're, they're just they're just outraged. I mean, but look, to be fair, I think they were outraged before they cracked the fucking book open, so it doesn't really matter. Now you were you were a boy obsessed with show business, obsessed with it. You knew you were going to be in show business. You didn't know how. You're in a small town in Scotland, and Lord knows how you ever figured your way out. But it's like a puzzle, isn't it? to figure it out. And, and books help you do that, don't they? One book in particular did it, to be honest. Uh, I think that when I was in my early teens, I read uh, David Niven's uh, autobiography, The Moons of the Loom. And One of the great ones. It's, it's a fantastic book. And, uh, and it, it's a very, it's a story of adventure that ultimately ends up in, in Hollywood. But I read it like I would read, a, you know, Treasure Island or, or, um, or Kidnapped or, you know, or any other, you know, Jekyll and Hyde. So it was, and I read it around about the same time. So it, it had a kind of aspirational, um, kind of almost like pirate-like adventure story about it, about his, you know, his exploits as a young man, which were, he, you know, he was a great raconteur and in it, in the storytelling in that book, it kind of drew you in. So, 
So the idea of getting getting drawn into show business, it wasn't so much the show business that appealed to me. It was more the adventure of that type of life. And that that's what seemed and still seems to me, um, although it's a lot more corporate than it used to be, but it it seemed to be a, a type of life which which contained adventure and, and travel. Uh, and so that was what, what did it for me. Really. But you know what's, what's interesting to me? You, yes, you are a, um, you're a loner for somebody that can entertain, you know, 10,000 people in a room, may have them laughing. You come out and play bagpipes at the beginning uh, <laughs> of the current show, which always kills me. Um, I've seen your show a lot, many, many times, and I love it because you hold on to the idea that uh, a raconteur can be on a stage, come to town and lift your spirits, and then you tell them to get the hell out. I mean, it's like it's the most wonderful couple of hours and you you know almost instinctively when they've had enough, but it's sometimes never enough. People are screaming no, on their I, feet I, at the end. No, I think you're being kind. I think sometimes it's enough. <laughs> well, no, it just if you're in a if let's say you're in a random casino and I'm there. Yeah, yeah sometimes it is enough. You, you you've done your 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 thing. Uh, back to David Niven for a second. You know what I love about Niven is I think that he came to Hollywood with stars in his eyes. Mm. He was Clark Gable's caddy. Yeah. Uh, he lived at Loretta Young's house. He climbed. He, he Loretta hit him in the backseat when she was a young starlet and got him jobs as extras on the movies. He knew he wasn't a great actor, but he knew he had something. And, and that something was partly that he was British. He knew that that was <laughs> that had a he knew that that his accent yeah. had had prestige in Hollywood. It had yeah. it had cachet. He had cachet because he was British. Yeah. Um, but what a wonderful man he appeared to be. Did you read uh, Bring on the Empty Horses? I did. Yeah. The, okay. The, the next one. Yeah. And do you remember what happened when he was widowed, when his wife was accidentally killed going down a flight of stairs in a game of stairs in a game of hide and seek in Hollywood? Yeah. Uh, After a dinner party. Yeah. I mean, I remember the the story he tells about one of his kids when he was at the lowest point because Premier's first wife had died. Right. And one of his boys was looking at the stars. It was a couple of nights later or something. And they were looking at the sky and one of the. One of his boys looked at the stars and said, I can see mommy's eye. And uh, and I thought, God, that's such a heartbreaking kind of piece of writing. I, he, I thought he was, a, he was a beautiful writer, David Nevin. I, I love that. I think so, too. Beautiful writer, great yeah. storyteller. And he became a great actor. He did. And. There was a there was a, a sort of rebuttal book written much later by a, a gentleman by the name I think Sheridan Morley, uh, Robert Morley's son wrote a book called The Other Side of the Moon, and it was about the reality of all those times. And I uh, and I I read that book and I kind of hated it because even although it was the truth, you know, uh, I or or it purported to be the truth or the other side of the story. Sometimes, you know, I think with with a good story, yeah, maybe the truth sometimes get in the way a little bit. You know what I'm saying? Like, Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's it's like 
I get that it wasn't quite as as uh, as idealistic and linear and um, and uh, and neat as the way uh, the way that he tells it, but that's uh-huh. that's what comes to telling stories over and over again. They kind of they they get structured, you know. They get structure, and then when things work in the story, you leave them in. Yeah, you drop what doesn't work, and it's that's. The great writers know that secret. If you tell the story out loud enough, yeah. eventually it it really comes together. How did you get your books as a child? Um, my my family lived very in a very similar way the, to the way I do now, in the sense that there were books everywhere. Um, the uh, my mother was a school teacher, so there were books around. Um, and my father read a lot of, uh, <laughs> there were books by, I think the guy's name was Dennis Wheatley. And they were kind of these kind of like sub erotic black magic kind of sexy ladies, kind of 70, 50s through 70s, kind of like right. espionage. Like, slash, like Pulp Fiction. Pulp yeah, a little, yeah, a little, a little, little pulpy. Like yeah, and the, but he read these kind of books that had these salacious covers of drawings of you know very uh, spectacular looking women wearing you know uh, fur bikinis uh, dealing with uh, you know uh, <laughs> like uh, uh, you know guys in cloaks getting too near them and stuff like that. Yeah, it yeah, was, yeah. It was kind of. So th- there was a kind of uh, the covers of these books kind of drew me in. The books themselves were actually, f- to to my mind, kind of tedious. I read a couple of them, and there was like, ugh. But um, but the I mean, and they weren't they weren't particularly erotic or indeed charged. They were just kind of I think they were easy to read. But my dad read them all the time, I, and I think that um, that was his version of a of Harlequin romance for men. Like yeah. they, it, it's pure escape. Your dad had pressure on him, and he wanted to read something. I get this all the time. The lady at the that uh, cuts my hair said to me, or said to me, uh, "Oh, your books are just. I have to sit down and really concentrate." <laughs> well, she, you know, and yeah. I was like, oh, "I'm sorry. Uh, let me work on that." Yeah. Um, it, it, and I have no judgment of that because I, whatever you want to read, I think it's fantastic. All my nieces sure. are reading Colleen Hoover. Who cares? I think it's fantastic. And I read Colleen and I, I understand what she's tapping and she's doing a phenomenal job. But it's it's um it's interesting what takes off, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think with with uh, with books. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of like clothes or food, really, isn't it? I mean, it's like mm-hmm. you, you like what you like, and um, I I kind of I, I I tend to these days I I've drifted into um, yeah, what I'm reading right now is like just nuts. I wouldn't I wouldn't understand why I've been, I've been trying to read up on the early Christian mystics. Uh, before okay say that again what are you reading what well, is it? i've been looking a little bit at the uh, uh, uh there's been there's a lot of uh they're not textbooks but they're kind of factual books about the desert fathers the birth of uh christian monasticism pre-roman catholicism early, you know the the uh second and third century a.d when uh 
<laughs> with Christianity. I just find it very interesting. Eh? It, you know, origin of Alexandria. Oh, why don't you just admit it? Why don't you admit it? Because what? you're on a search. Sure. You want to know. You want to understand. I think, and, and I think at this stage of your young life, you're figuring out, hey, where am I going after this? Well. What's happening? And, I, and and by the way, the idea of, of you in eternity without Megan kind of makes you sick. So you don't want that. Right. And you want your boys there. You want them there. You want all the people you love around you when you go to the next level. So I think that your search through the monasticism of, what was it, th 3 AD, 30? Yeah, the, the Desert Fathers from... From, uh, you know, St. Anthony, who lived, you know, on his own and battled with the demons through uh, origin of Alexandria. Are you talking about St. Anthony of Padua? Yeah, no, there, there's an earlier one. Uh, St. Anthony, um, there's a couple of St. Anthony's, I think. Yes, and there Saint are. St. Anthony, uh, I think it's St. Anthony, he was out of the desert, he was a hermit. Uh, and he he lived for a long time in an old uh, building and then he moved to a cave because too many people were coming to see him. And he lived in a cave for a, a long time. <laughs> that's you. That's yeah. you. Not one. That's you <laughs> hating parties. That's you hating parties and locking the door. I don't want anybody in here. I do hate parties. But but I think I think what it is just to kind of look at what you said about, you know, looking at the next level. That's actually not. How, why I'm drawn to it. I'm rather, it, there's a direct line. Here's, here's what happened. I started reading C.S. Lewis's uh, Christian Apologetics, and I found them fascinating. I, I found it fascinating that C.S. Lewis, who uh, was, you know, um, a very deeply committed Christian, uh, could have a, a friendly relationship with, H.G. Wells, who was a who was a committed atheist, and, and Bertrand Russell as well, and and the uh, what drew me in was the was because right now because people can't be friendly with people. It seems to me very very difficult for people who can't be friendly to people who have different views than them. That's what kind of drew me. I thought, well, I'll read about someone who has a different view to me uh, because I'm not really I'm not. I'm not very fundamental in any of my positions. I'm like, is that true? Uh, well, let me read the opposing argument. And and so I read um, C.S. Lewis, and that kind of, he wrote a book called um, uh, What Christians Believe, which I found fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and then he read me to uh, a predecessor of his, a gentleman by the name of G.K. Chesterton, who was also uh, um, a Christian apologist who um, who is is a bit tougher, a bit more like you. You have to concentrate uh, on what he's what he's reading and uh, what he's writing. And then uh, that led me to William James, uh, a great American writer, the brother of Henry James, the great great another great American writer who who wrote a book called The Varieties of Religious Experience, which I was fascinated by, and of course. That you bounce around from that to Carl Jung, and then you end up, you know, I don't rooting around in the desert with Evagrius of Pontus for some reason. Amazing, amazing! It's like you put a needle to the nerve of this thing. You're trying to get to the heart of it. I think so, but I'm not looking to explain my future. 
I'm not looking to to oh. do that. I'm not. I'm not trying to see what is in the great beyond. I. I'm not. I. I don't. I think that's. That's. Forgive me. I think that's a little naive. I think what I am interested in is what's what's all this about. That's all. What what's it well, about? But, but there has to be a context for what this is all about for you. Well, it's I history, agree. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. So that's the context, right? Yeah, I but, think but, so. But, but knowing think, the depth of knowing the depth of emotion of love of the eternal soul, you're a writer, obviously uh, a, a great writer. I, I huh. think people read you. Yeah, well, I have all your books; they're great. And you and you write screenplays and you mm-hmm. direct them and you mm-hmm. act and you talked to probably uh, uh, I don't know how many thousands of people over the course of your ten years on television. Yeah. Um, you're always engaging in conversations that hopefully it's it's never frivolous with you. I, I no no I think I think that the, a lot of my conversations, particularly on television, were very frivolous. I, well, I think okay, that, I'm not talking about that now. I'm right. saying yeah, in that context, you were entertaining people. Right. But whenever I travel, people ask me about you. What's he really like? And I said, well, he's really like what you see, but he's a reader. He's a thinker. He's a seeker. He doesn't pretend to have all the answers. Now, it's interesting to me when you were listing some of these guys and talking about G.K. Chesterton, okay, C.S. Lewis, H.G. Wells, Bertrand Russell. Um, Did you ever come across Aldous Huxley? Oh, sure. Yeah. Brave New World. Now, he's in that that crew. And then the the other one, Evelyn Waugh. Did you ever read him? Yeah, I read. I was surprised when I read *Brideshead Revisited* mm-hmm. that how funny it is. It's a really funny book, and I think that all of the adaptations that I've seen on screen of that have kind of the one that uh, British Television, Granada Television, did with Jeremy Irons uh, in the in the eighties was pretty good, but. But um, in fact, it was great. But it still missed the essential. I mean, that's a really funny book. It's a very clever book. But the scenes in it when Charles Ryder's father pretends to be French. Oh, no, he doesn't pretend to be French. He pretends that Charles Ryder's friend that he brings for dinner, his son's friend, he decides his son's friend is French. And who's not? he's not French at all. But he speaks that he will only ask him about how are things in Paris right now and do your people eat this kind of thing? And I mean, it's so, it's so weird and twisted. He he was fascinating. And um, I met the people that, that managed his estate. They were very interesting people, too. And there was a story that he tells at the beginning of his book about being a reporter that, Craig, you go crazy for it. He, you know, his name's Evelyn Waugh. So he said, whenever I was unannounced, they didn't know who I was. There would be a bunch of young girls from the local school with bouquets of flowers, nosegays. They thought <laughs> he was a woman. And so you know, yeah. about the 50th time it happened, you know, I, I mean, it's just very funny that, you know, he, he, he felt like he got stuck with this crap name, except it's his lineage. And he, of course, had to support the name. But he he. It was so personal. He has a way of telling a story of, in a context of the times he lived in, but it was it was his feelings about the time. It was personal. And I want to ask you about that. Do you think it can be great writing if it isn't personal? Um, it, you know, I, I 
I don't know, but I, I suspect no. Um, I think that, I mean, if you look at great masterpieces, like, uh, I, I don't know, pick one out of the air, um, To Kill a Mockingbird or, or 1984 or something like that, great works of fiction, which obviously are not, uh, well, actually, To Kill a Mockingbird is, is, I guess, very personal. So that's a, that's a bad example. But so take 1984 or indeed uh, Brave New World, Aldous Huxley. They're writing about worlds which are outside of the experience of the book. They are not... You know, they're not, it's not, a, I was there, I saw this, or, you know, or this is the world I grew up in. They're, they're, you know, they're dystopian, if you like. But I think the emotions and the, and the uh, observations that are made are deeply personal. I mean, mm-hmm. when, uh, when Winston Smith uh, says to O'Brien in 1984, I understand how, I just don't understand why. Um, mm. the, um, the, I think that is a, that's a very personal question from, uh, f- from George Orwell to, to the universe. Do you know what I mean? Or, or mm-hmm. to the, or to Stalin or whoever the hell he was writing about. But, and, and I think that, um, no, I, I think to answer your question, no, I, I probably don't think it can be great writing unless it's personal. But then again, you, you look at um, works like I don't know, uh, a brief history of time. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's do you know what? It's a great theory. I, I find the writing of it's incomprehensible to me. I can't read it. It's so hard. I thought Moby. I thought Moby Dick was hard. Yeah, it is. It is, but it's hard in a kind of uh, great way. Um, let yeah, me. I guess. I, I, in a in a defense of Moby Dick is that I, I think the explosion of genius that's that's in Moby Dick is contained for me. People always quote that call me Ishmael like it's a great line. I, I, I don't get call me why that's so great, but but there's a, a chapter about four or five, maybe seven chapters in Moby Dick where there's a a sermon given from the pulpit of the church before they go to sea. But I'm like, holy crap, that's an amazing piece of writing. It's very dense. It's like very thick cake. but That's what I mean. It's great, though. It's great. Well, you make very dense thick cakes, which are also very, very good. But they take a few days to get through. Uh, Let's be honest. Yeah. Okay. I, and I don't expect you to. How about that? Yeah. You don't have to. I'm not talking I about love your you. I'm, t- I'm talking about your actual cakes. I'm talking about the, the sheet cake that you that you made. I took it took us about three weeks to get through it. I'm not talking about your books at all. Your books are great. They're, it's a lot of butter. And there's a lot of butter and there's a lot of eggs in that cake. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew you'd love it. And oh I just God. I pictured you tiptoeing in there in your pajamas. In the middle yeah. of the night, having a little slice of totally. that. And it took you three weeks. I'm not surprised. I, I, so you're doing exactly me to is. drop off another one. You Are What You Read is brought to you by Book of the Month. My mother was a member of Book of the Month. I'm a member. My daughter is a member. And it is my favorite subscription service to give to fellow readers. Thanks to our wonderful friends over at Book of the Month. And because of them, we get to bring you a discount. Head over to bookofthemonth.com to choose your first book for just $9.99 with code ADRI, A-D-R-I. 
Thank you, Book of the Month. And thank you for reading. Now, our children are saying, we don't want any labels, but we need some labels. Now you have to you listen to our labels. And, I, and, and, I, and we have to because we're, you know. You know what I think about the kids right now? I think yeah. that, I, here's what I think. I think it's like, like Bowie nailed it in the 1970s in that song when he wrote, and these children that you spit on as they try to change their world, they're immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. Ch-ch-ch-ch-changes, you know. And That's so, so true. So true. Being, being a grumpy old fuck about, you know, how the, how the younger people, like Socrates said that, like, oh, the youth of the day, and they're going to destroy the world. And, you know, I don't know, maybe they did, Socrates. I mean, he was a smart guy. Maybe he... He nailed it then, but I don't know. I, I feel like it's too much of a cliche to complain about the young. I'm not going to do it. They, they, no, they, they, can I tell you something from my perspective? These kids are phenomenal. Mm-hmm. They're spectacular. They're, they're, they've got ideas. Mm-hmm. They also are very honest assessors of the past and history and what, what happened. Uh, they're very on top of that. And um, because I have interns here and I have for like 15 years. I think we had, how many we have last summer? Like 11 or something coming through? Oh, God. <laughs> no, no, no. You got to get excited because they are brilliant and they're hard workers. And yeah. they, they see what's going on. They, look, look I, I was with your son and his friends and they all had notebooks. They were all drawing the whole time. Who does yeah, that? They're, they're cool. You know, they're, they're cool. It was, like my, it was like my grandmother knitting. I'm like, put you guys, you're going to keep drawing them. Oh, yeah, we got to. The light changed yeah. and they moved across the field. I mean, these kids are, and I think they're different, Craig, because we grew up and it was all unknown to us in a certain way. Mm. But things are known now. Do you know what I'm getting at? I think so. I think that, I think that there are, there, there's quite a lot of courage that I think the young they're, people they're are gutsy. displaying and, yeah. Yeah, about confronting the, the difficulties of, of the past. But, you know, young people, uh, male people, female people, you know, whatever it is, some of the, like young people, just like everyone else, some of them are great, some of them are total assholes. And, um, you know, and that it, they're no different in that regard to any other group in society. I don't think. Some of them are great, some of them are not. It's one of the greatest things I learned doing late night was, because I met everybody, everybody that was famous or was getting famous or who used to be famous. And I found this, that the mensch to douchebag ratio was exactly the same in Hollywood as it was in a bar in Glasgow. Some people were nice, some people were assholes, and it really is on a case-by-case basis all the time, no matter where you are. Fascinating. What do you think makes somebody uh, in the jackass department? Selfishness, I think. Selfishness and a fundamental didactism. The, the, the fact that you can't cut somebody some fucking slack. So, you know, um, I, and I think not being able to, uh, uh, you know the song for the, in the song, The Ladies Tramp, when he's saying she never hangs around with people that she hates. Yeah. You know, you should be able to hang with people that you hate for a little bit, you know, and then, and then, yeah. and then yeah. you can at least figure out why you hate them. You know, I mean, it's, sure. it's kind of, uh, 
I, I, I kind of, I think people who, who aren't willing to, uh, to see it from somebody else's point of view, just a little bit, that's what makes it. And also just behavior, bad behavior, you know, where's my latte type, you know, shitty behavior, that kind of thing. But I didn't see a lot of that, you know, but you see it sometimes. What, what's more exciting to you? Uh, I'm just going to list a couple things. Process or result? Rehearsal or performance? Uh, you know, I mean, it's chicken or fish, really, isn't it? I mean, it, it I, kind, I, it kind, it, a little bit, but, yeah. but I've seen you in process. And you do something. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't. Because you think you're, I, I know in your heart, you probably think your process is not very good, right? Mm-hmm, totally, yeah. Okay, you think you <laughs> we would say to our children, you think you're going to wing it on that test? You got to study, right? <laughs> you're going to yeah. wing it. You can't yeah. wing it, right? You got to yeah. learn that theorem. You got to figure out how to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. But you do something that I think is really brilliant is you coming cold because then you're processing what's happening right here, which is why I think you're so good. Now, when I go back, like on, like during my lunch hour, I, I'll think about something or someone. I usually, I'm going to be honest, I will first watch Don Rickles before I watch old late night, uh, your old show. Because Don Rickles, I, I, he kills me. I, yeah. I, he was the king, right? Mm, um, and I'll fun. watch him get up in, in the back of a room somewhere, just off the cuff, insulting everyone. It makes me, it really, I really find it hilarious. But there's also a humanity in him that I, I think is irresistible. But watching you, you sort of slump down in the chair, which you do in real life. And you sort of like almost, it was like you were pulling something out of your head. You'd like <laughs> pull that, your fist away. And you, to get to the pith of something. And you knew though, this is, now just tell me if I'm wrong. Well, at a talk show, how am I going to get to the pith? I got to keep them laughing and get them to the end. But you would get to the pith with people. You sometimes, did. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes there's no pith to get. I mean, look, the, yeah. in, in a talk show, the, 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 there's literally thousands of hours of that old, that old show. And, you know, a lot of people, particularly the youngsters, don't even know that that show stopped being made 10 years ago because they watch it on YouTube or mm-hmm. they watch 10-minute bursts of it and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know if I could do that show even now because there, the atmosphere is very guarded amongst anyone who mm-hmm. works. It. Everyone's a little worried about saying the wrong thing. So people want to know what, what their conversation is going to consist of. And I don't blame them because, you know, if you're in a conversation, you think, am I going to say something here that's going to uh, oh, ignite yeah. a firestorm yeah, 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 of, yeah. of, of, of uh, rage against me? And, and so, so I think in, in the environment that currently exists, and I don't think it will be this way forever, it's just the way it is right now, that, um, that people would not be willing to be so free and, and in that's their bad. That's bad. That's bad. You got to be free. You got to be free. I think I think it's understandable. Look, I think in the in the world that we're inhabiting right this very moment it exists. I think in the in the podcast world, in the in the world where people talk about things, I think it is free. I think that mm-hmm. in anything that is too corporately managed, it is not free because 
And you've got to remember as well, there was a little bit, I, I was an anomaly in television because mm -hmm. David Letterman owned the time slot. He literally owned the time slot. So CBS weren't paying attention and Dave wasn't paying attention because he was doing his own show. So it was just, it was kind of a, it was a little gap in the, in the fence and I just ran at that. But Interesting. It, it, it doesn't really exist, that kind of thing. And, um, and that's okay. I, I, I think it's all right. I think free, freedom of speech and thought does, of course, exist. I just don't think it exists in a corporate environment because there's a lot of lawyering going on to protect people from damaging the stock price. Uh, but, you know, I think with, with, if you're doing a podcast with, with your friend, I don't think anyone's really looking at the stock price there. I mean, maybe you're looking at yours, maybe I'm looking at mine, but that, that's what it is. That's interesting. But everything we've ever done in entertainment was to sell something else. Always. Yeah, yes, usually. You know, yeah, you know, yeah. uh, you know, uh Bethlehem Steel presents or you know yeah, yeah, or yeah. Lux Soap yeah. presents or the types of then comedy art or something. Right. You know I mean? But but now it's it's also content that mm. they look at. And by content, I don't mean what is written, I mean what is said. If somebody's off the cuff saying like Oscar Levant could never get away with what he said on the Jack Parr show today. He would have been me too in two seconds. Right. Or, 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 or indeed Don Rickles, what you're talking about. I mean, I mean, Don Rickles Rickles would have too. yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that it is what it is. I, I, I feel like, um, I'm, I don't want to complain about it. I just think it, it, it's just shifted where it exists. I mean, I think, you know, freedom of speech and thought, if I've learned, learned anything from, from 1984 or, or Brave New World, it's, I think freedom of thought and expression is it's a little bit like, you know, like war, like it finds, it finds a way. Uh, no, in 1984 and uh, Brave New World, I think the concept is that it doesn't find a way, that ultimately it doesn't. But I think so far there there is always some kind of, I mean, and people may, may disagree with me, they often do, but I think that there is still freedom of thought and expression. I just think that there are areas where, look, you don't go to your grand's house and play a, a Sex Pistols song, right? You don't go and see your grandmother and play Anarchy in the UK. It's so go, simple. You're yeah. right. It's what's appropriate for the audience. This book banning is is insanity. Right. Because you don't give a five-year-old, you know, uh, uh, 1984, right. and you don't read it aloud to them. You read no. aloud what is appropriate to them. But there's this lack of trust of librarians and teachers that that's how they're they're getting their hooks in. And who didn't, you know, uh, we we loved our teachers, and sometimes we didn't love our teachers. Sometimes oh, I didn't. I I I could count one finger the teachers that I liked, um, but they. Uh, no, I didn't like my teachers, but I will say this. They gave me a great, they did me a great favor. They taught me to read. Um, and then once you can read, you can make up your own decision. You know, you, like once you can read and absorb the information, then it's on you. So if you decide, nah, I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to listen to what someone else thinks about it. That's your choice. But if you can absorb the information directly from the source, then you got the same chance as anyone else. I'm not intimidated by an academic uh, study of anything. 
you know, uh, and maybe that's a, a terrible arrogance. Are you kidding my... me? You're not intimidated by anything. Oh, no, You're no, not no. In... I am. I am very. All right. Well, I want to hear what that is, because I would watch you observe you. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know you really hate that I observe you, but I would observe your your. And I think it's this way in everything. And I was really shocked when I read your books because I felt like, wow, I mean, you could put it on the page. I, I, I highly recommend people read your books. And I, I've told them that, um, particularly this one. Right in the elephant? Yeah. Right in like the elephant. Because, I like because you know why? The stories yeah. are self-contained. Yeah. So if you have half an hour, you can you don't you're not invested in an entire novel and you've written great novels but i loved this because i felt like th these stories were self-contained and i could enjoy them as i moved through life which is the way people like to read now a lot of people sure, so yeah. that, which is good but i want to get back to your process for a second because observing you it, you're somebody to me who or you are a person who takes it all in and then puts out what they think the situation requires yeah is that a scottish thing no i i don't think so i think that's a, a survival mechanism for a period of time where you know saying the wrong thing would, would cause violence to be perpetrated against you i mean the so if you grow up in a sectarian environment or a or a, a an unstable uh, Scotland in the 1970s, where I, when I was, you know, in my formative years, was was a, a, a difficult, dangerous, and angry place. I don't know if it's that way now. I don't think it is as bad now, but it but it was then. And, and were you were you bullied? Were you bullied? Everyone was bullied. Uh, everyone was. Even the bullies were bullied. The violence was everywhere. You know. So the the there is the there's a very kind of I have always rather uh, kind of cringed at the idea of. You know, I was, uh, you know, I was bullied as a kid and I became a comedian. I think, well, that's very simplistic because where I was, where I grew up, the bullies had their bullies. There was bullies bullying their bullies and those bullies had other bullies on top of them. And there was a, there was a chain of, uh, of uh, violent interaction and, mm -hmm. and, and, and viciousness, which, and confrontation, which was not as simplistic as I was bullied in there. But there was very definitely an air of uh, threat the whole time. And what I, I've always thought, and I've, I've tried to explain this uh, to people who've grown up in, in a slightly different environment, is that when you come from a poor background, uh, a disadvantaged background, it, financially perhaps, the only thing that you have is manners. The only thing that you have is respect. So when uh, when I hear politicians take a whole group of people and call them a name, I think you're crazy. You're crazy, particularly if these people don't have much, because you've just alienated all those. Even if these people agree with you, now they're mad. You know, because you have to. Uh, I think that the the idea of being maybe it's as simple as this. If I was rude to people, I might get my I might get my face punched. You know, if I said the wrong thing in the wrong environment, I might get hurt. And so mm -hmm. I I think that there is a that's when you you learn to listen a little bit and say, okay, well maybe I'm not going to say anything here. 
Um, well, you know, it's interesting because Scotland and Appalachia, where I grew up, were so similar. Same people, very, almost. Yeah, yeah. The I mean, people, the people are really well. I think they're of the same kin in certain ways too, although yeah, very sure. mixed in Southwest Virginia, and sure, and it's getting more mixed in Scotland. I mean, we sure, yeah, we you have you have people from all over the world now in Scotland, which wasn't yeah. the case. I don't think when you were growing up. I think it was probably. A little bit. I mean, we had a, there were a lot, particularly when I lived in Glasgow, there was a big Italian population, a big Irish population in Glasgow. Uh, there was uh, Chinese people. And as I, when I was very young, the Pakistani and Indian community was really growing and they had a huge nice. improvement to, to life. Uh, I don't think anyone would deny that, you know, that they brought in a, a, a whole new, <laughs> well, let's be honest, a whole new way of eating food, which was fantastic. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, if, yeah. if for that, if for nothing else, but bringing in these uh, these communities, I think, really helped uh, helped particularly Glasgow. I think at that time. Well, Glasgow is alive and crackling. I mean, the last time I was there was last yes. year, right? Yeah, and it's, it is. Yeah. It's, it's a poor it's, city. It has that kind of feel. It has a. It has an energy. Uh, yeah. and, and a diversity that's really beautiful. Uh, the history of Scotland really it informs your people, doesn't it? I think the history of, of anywhere, yes, I think you're right. But I, I think that uh, in Scotland, I think, uh, I don't know a great deal about Scottish history. I know the populist versions of mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm. like, like many, like many, I, like my... Americans, I'm an American too. I think a lot of Americans know one version of it, but history, if we know anything, is a lot of different versions. I mean, there's a lot and of. And we also versions. know, and we also know half of it's missing because women aren't in it. Right. I I think that 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 may be so. <laughs> Perhaps you're right. I think there's, you know, if, if you look, they're right there. I mean, <laughs> right there, they were there. I mean, uh, I, of course, but it's not written. It's not written. You know, the, did you ever um, read, and we could talk all day, and I'm not going to make you talk all day because yeah. talk to you forever. Um, did you ever read Inside Europe by John Gunther? No, I'm not familiar with that at all. It was in my grandparents' home. Right. And I'd read it like if I, uh, during the summers. And then when I, when I do any historical fiction, I go to that book. If I'm going to talk about the area from 1900 to 1940 i read those books and you know what you know i'd like you to speak to this we know when we have bad leaders and we play this game like well there's two sides there's three sides there's 72 sides and i i'd like to get our heads out of what's political and embrace what's moral what's decent what's kind what's life affirming as opposed to what is political um because if you just slap a, a name on somebody a label you know they tend you tend to like look at them like the label we we could we could predict in the current state of the world right now what's going to happen based on history so so my, my question to you is when when you look at the swath of history, if if we don't if we if we don't embrace history and understand history, is it going to lead to our destruction? 
Um, well, I don't know, but I feel like uh, it's the phrase I'm about to use has been attributed to Mark Twain. I don't know if it was him, but I've heard it said then, which is history does not repeat itself, but it rhymes. Um, and which is, a, right. I think, is a, a fact. Yeah, I, I don't know if that was him or not, but but it rhymes. <laughs> um, and I think that. Of course, you can like 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 a human being, like a personal entity. If you look at your own personal history, you know, I put my hand in the pot, it burned. I'm not going to do that again. So, of course, you learn from things that you do. I mean, I, I got into a relationship with someone that hates my guts. I'm not going to do that again. You learn from your experience. Um, but the um, in, in, in a general term, I don't think it's, I know this is probably not a very nice answer, but I, I don't think it's as easy as, as looking at history. I think that when you're talking about human decency, you, or you're talking about Jane Eyre, actually, to bring it to the, you, you, or, 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 um, or, your, or, or Jiminy Cricket, you know, always let your conscience be your guide. You know, you, you intuitively know, I think, sometimes. But the problem is, and this is, I have to tell myself this whenever I'm in conflict with someone, is that really, in very rare occasions, mostly, no one is the villain of their own story. You know, so as you're telling yourself, well, this is what happened. Well, I was just standing there and this guy came over. Now, you, you, most of the times when I, when I was a kid, when I said, well, I was just standing there, I wasn't just standing there. I had a, I had a thing. Now, there are very definite occasions when somebody was just standing there and, and, and stuff happened. But trying to, to piece together a plan for the future based on what happened in the, past i think is is the only shot you've got but is it 100 percent reliable I, I i don't know i don't know i i question it a little bit that's all what keeps you up at night um geez uh just about everything um i i, I uh I worry. I worry. I have children. So, of course, I worry. I, you know, I have, you know, I have this fleshy tabernacle. I worry about that. You know, I mean, well, at what point is my particular temple going to crumble and how, at what form will that take? I worry about, um, I, I think I worry about what everyone else worries about. I worry about alienation and, uh, an existential angst, I guess, is is what you call. It. I worry about judgment. I worry about um my weight. <laughs> you know, I, you're so much like a woman. <laughs> I'm just a person, same like the same as everybody else. I think that that's. I mean, can we just say people? We're all fucking people. You know, everybody's a everybody's a people. That's right. And we have the same insecurities and the same drives and um, maybe to different destinations, which is fine, sure. you know. Um, but I, I, I see, you know, I stand back and look at your life and I didn't know you before you were married to Megan. Isn't that a crazy thought? Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't it's know a crazy if I did thought. either. <laughs> that's it, but, well, the, um, that's what's interesting to me hmm. because I, uh, I hope we've taught our children like that's a really important, essential, fundamental decision. Who you share your life with. How, besides modeling it, how do you talk to your, your how will you talk, Liam's too young, uh, Milo's in the area. How do you talk to your children about how you choose that person? I, I think what I, what I say now to, to anyone is that the rules are not the same. The rules have been changing for a little while, and, it, and they are like this. If, for example, I said something that I regret saying 25 years ago, it's unlikely there's a fucking videotape of that, you know. But if I said something last week that I, you know, on reflection, I shouldn't have said that, you know, then there's fucking, it's out there. And, and now it exists that I think that all the time. So the minute you put, uh, uh, like, what I thought when I was 20 years old, it's not what I think now, but... But if I if that exists in the digital everythingness in the timeless um, portal of once you put it out there, it's done. That's how you think. Mm -hmm. Then that exists forever. So whenever you make, whenever you do a tweet or whenever you do a, a TikTok of yourself giving your opinion about something, it's like you wrote a book. It's like you wrote a book. It's like everybody's going to think in perpetuity that this is how you thought and you never moved on from that thought. And, and so anything I say to young people now is just be careful what you put out in a, in a grander form because you might change your mind. You know, chances are you will. Uh, and so I think genuine emotion belongs only to the world of analog. I think that, that in, like, in, in this conversation we are having right in this moment, right now, in 20 years from now, will I feel the same as I'm talking about? I don't know. I don't know. Did I feel this way 20 years ago? No, probably. You know, was, was I capable of having this conversation with you 20 years ago? No, probably. 10 years ago, five years ago. So um, I feel like the, utter permanence of digital technology is something that that you should be very cautious of and it and it look it, it just by the very nature of you know tweet resurfaces of somebody you know tweeted something 15 years ago that now they're like oh my god i can't believe i said that have you ever in your life you know, maybe had a little too much to drink or maybe you were angry or something and you said oh my god i should never have said that when you say it and it exists in the in the media, you that's how that's you now. Mm. That, that's that's you now. So uh, I now may, and maybe this is maybe this is an old person's mistrust of of the digital realm. But I think the great sinister thing about digital technology is the fact that. It owns your memories. You don't own your memories. It owns your thoughts. You don't own your thoughts. How you think 
in your TikTok videos, how you will always think for the history of the universe until this stuff is destroyed. And, and that, I feel, is, is quite an obligation for young people. That's, that's, a, that's an incredible view of the current scene of technology. It's quite dark, I suppose, isn't it? Uh, but, well, uh, listen, the minute they tell your doctor tells you they're going to put it on your phone, what are you going to do? Yeah. Like if you have a disease, it's on your phone. Yeah. This is crazy. If you want to apply to college, it's on your phone. Yeah. I mean, all the great, you know, important moves you try to make in your life are facilitated by that. I think that's, I think that's the crazy thing. Well, it, it is. If you look at the, and we had a discussion like that. We, we all went out for dinner last night. We, everybody put their phones away, and we had dinner in this restaurant. And um, our discussion about the phone was this: whenever the phone is in the room, you can be talking to someone, you can be having a conversation, but the phone is the most important person in the room. It's like having a kid in the room. It's like, are you all right? Is, is everyone okay? Are you going to fall over? Is, is you know? It's like. It's like it draws your, it pulls your attention away. So you're, you're there, but you're not really there the whole time. And look, I get that people my age complain about technology. They always have done. Things were better before the wheel. But I, all I'm saying is uh, I, I am who I am and I am where I am in my life and in the universe. And this thing, this thing is to be treated with great uh, caution. I completely agree, and I don't think kids should be on it till they're eighteen. <laughs> but I think I, I I I agree with you, but I also think that it's you're out of your cracked. mind. Yeah, it's never yeah, 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 yeah. You're out of your mind. Um, I have loved every second of this conversation. Uh, your podcast, which is called Joy, I cannot recommend highly enough. I oh, love it. You. I listen to it. And I loved our time together on your podcast, and I have loved this, and I learned so much, and I wrote down 50 titles, which we will share with everyone. Um, is there anything that um, you want folks to know? Yes. Before, uh, yes. Yes, there is. I want okay, them to know this. Here's what I want them to know. I love talking to you on, on this podcast and on my podcast and in the public realm. But I much prefer talking to you when it's not being recorded. <laughs> Me I, too. Oh gosh. Me I, too. I, because then I, we, we, oh man. Then there's not quite the little kind of. Hey, you sure you want to say that? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I have the adequate words to say what you mean to me because, <laughs> except for the first time I talked to you on the phone. Ever since, I mean, you've been my brother. You were very frosty. And I bring it up every time because yeah, I want people to know sometimes they have to give you a second chance because maybe everybody, everybody needs a second chance, don't they? I mean, come on. But I can't wait till someday that we're back working on something. I don't even care what I, I'll do the craft services. I don't care. I just, I just had a, I just had a ball. No, with you. If you do the craft services, I'm going to be 500 pounds before the end of the shoot. So we got it. We got to do it another way. You, you, by the way, it. by the way, I can make some lighter fare for you. I don't have to be making the <laughs> everything. Everything is relative. If you start at sheet cake, uh, I mean, you're still dropping down to only here, you know, I mean, it's still a lot. I can't take anything out of that sheet cake. It is yeah, what it is. I'm not asking you to. I'm just saying. Okay. It's like this. It should be treated with great caution. Great caution. <laughs> when you see me at the door with anything in tinfoil. Oh, here it is. 
Cut it in half. All right. Thank you, dear Craig. I love you very much, and we'll see you soon. I love you too, Andrea. I'll speak to you soon. Dear listeners, if you love Craig Ferguson now, and I know you do, you don't want to miss him on his fancy rascal tour. He is fantastic. And grab your best friend, your husband, your girlfriend, whoever you got, and take them to see him. Because you come out of his shows feeling the possibilities of the world again. He's a deep thinker, but he's hilarious. And some of my future guests, including Stephen Wright, think he's the fastest mind in the business. So be sure and check out his tour. Read his books. He is an amazing artist and one of the great, great minds of our time.